0: This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cavanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. John 17. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. I'm going to read verses 1 through 19. "'For I have given them the words that you gave me, "'and they have received them, "'and have come to know in truth that I come from you, "'and they have believed that you sent me. "'I'm praying for them. "'I'm not praying for the world, "'but for those whom you have given me, "'for they are yours. "'All mine are yours, and yours are mine, "'and I am glorified in you in them. "'And I am no longer in the world, "'but they are in the world, "'and I'm coming to you. "'Holy Father, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we humble ourselves before your word today because we believe that your word is God-breathed. It is spirit, truth, and life to us. And so we ask now that you would speak to us through your word, that you would open our ears, that you would soften our hearts, that you would direct our wills, God, that we would encounter you. I pray this wouldn't just be an external intellectual Bible lesson, but I pray that we would encounter the living God through your word and that it would impact our hearts. Lord, I pray that your word would collide with our hearts and where there needs to be repentance. Lord, may we repent, and where there needs to be encouragement, may you lift us, strengthen us in your word. Where there may need to be hope, bring hope. Spirit of God, speak. We pray that you would have your way in this time. I ask that you would fill me with your spirit, that I could proclaim your word in truth to the wonderful folks gathered here, and I pray that you would give us all ears to hear and hearts to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's where we are in the scripture, we're going through John, and if you're new here, what we're going to do is just kind of walk through what we just read, I'm not going to comment on every word, but most of it we're going to comment on and try to apply it to our lives. Um... But here's where we are in in this uh, book, in John 17. In John 13, Jesus told his disciples that he was leaving and they couldn't come with him. And so their hearts are troubled by that. They are upset. They are perhaps disillusioned, not knowing what's going to happen. And so he takes the next three chapters, uh, 14, 15, and 16, and he teaches them... Um, and gives them promises about what it will be like for him to be with them by the Holy Spirit. He's going to live in them by the Holy Spirit, he says. And then in chapter 17, having been done with teaching, he now prays a prayer to his father just prior to his crucifixion. So after this prayer, the events are going to start moving in John fast. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be buried and he's going to be resurrected. So this is the last section before his arrest. That's where we are. And I think it's a powerful passage for a number of reasons. One is when you hear someone pray, especially right before their death, as is going to happen with Jesus, when you hear someone pray, you pick up their heartbeat. If you've ever prayed with someone who is crying out to the Lord and asking God to help them and to meet that, they're praying to glorify the Lord with their life, you pick up their heart. And so we hear God's heart here. We hear Jesus, the Savior's heart, at the end of his life. And so it's very compelling for us to hear, what is he thinking about? As he talks to his father, what is he talking about at the end of his life? And so this chapter comes in three parts. He prays three things. In verses 1 through 5, he prays for himself. In verses 6 through 19, he prays for his disciples. And in verses 20 through 26... Uh, he prays really for us. He prays for the future, his future followers, which is us. So we're only going to look at the first two today, how he prays for himself and how he prays for his disciples. And then next week we'll look at verses 20 through 26. And this is what we find in these first two passages today, these first two sections, is that Jesus prays for God to be glorified through his death, his resurrection as well. But he's looking for God to be glorified through his death and through his disciples. So he wants God to be glorified through his death and through then the ministry of his disciples that will follow. So those are the two things we're going to look at. First of all, Jesus prays for God to be glorified through his death. Verse uh, 1 says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven And he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The hour has come, he says. What hour? It's the hour of his death. Throughout the gospel, he has said, it's not my time. It's not my hour. But now he says, it's my hour. And his hour is the hour that he... He didn't mean literally 60 minutes, but he's saying, this is my time. And his time will be to die on the cross. And he is praying that the Father would be glorified and that he would be glorified as well in his hour. And that's exactly what happens because in the cross, and the death of Jesus, the glory of God is on display like it has never been on display before. You see, the glory of God is the revelation. The glory of God is the communication. The glory of God is... It is it is the revelation of who God is, what he's like. When God is revealed, that is his glory. Oftentimes his glory is associated with light and majesty in the Bible. It's the coming for so when God is revealed, what he's like, that's the glory of God. Who he is, what's God's character like? And here, what God is like is revealed through the hour of Jesus' crucifixion, which is coming up. And in that time, we see the holiness of God clearer than it's ever been seen. The cross, Jesus's hour, he's praying, would you be glorified? Would your nature and character be on display? And would you glorify the Son? Would you point all eyes to me so that the nature and character of God is on display through my death? Because in his death, the holiness of God is on display. The holiness of God shines Crystal clear, with a penetrating clarity like it's never been seen before. In the death of Jesus, the the elements reveal the holiness of God. the The sky darkens midday, and the sky darkens when Jesus is crucified. There is an earthquake when Jesus is crucified, because in his crucifixion, his holiness is on display. How is his holiness on display? Because his wrath. His judgment is on display in the cross. Well, now, I thought the cross was a good thing. What do you mean the wrath and the holy? Where's the wrath of God in in the cross? Well, the wrath of God is that God is perfectly holy, and because of His holiness and righteousness, He is opposed to sin. And as a just judge, He must punish sin. And sin is not just an indiscretion, or sin is not just a, 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 a slip-up or a mistake. Sin is a rebellion against God, and we are all sinful. Sin is opposition to God. Sin is our hiding from God. Sin is our pursuing our ways. Sin is our running from God, and that's who we all are by nature. We run to darkness, not to light. We hide from light by nature. And so God must punish sin, and what He does is He becomes a man in Jesus Christ. His hour, Jesus dies on a cross, and as He's dying, as brutal as His suffering is, which we will see, as brutal as His suffering is, the the most uh, amazing thing about His death is that God is pouring out His holy judgment against sin on His Son. Jesus is taking our place, and Jesus is absorbing the wrath of God. God's holy hatred for sin, which is due you and which is due me, is poured out upon Jesus, so that Jesus is treated like a sinner. Jesus is perfect. He's holy. He's God. But He is treated like a sinner, and God pours out His judgment on Jesus the Son. And so the holiness of God is displayed because God is so holy. The only way that He could reveal His judgment, the only way that His judgment could be uh, met is for He Himself to become man and die in our place. And because of that, His holiness is not only revealed, but His grace. There is no place that we see the love and the grace of God more clearly than the cross. Because God the Judge is judging our sin But God the Son is receiving the judgment. Do you see this? The one pouring out his holy, fierce anger against sin is the same one who is receiving the judgment for sin. This is the grace of God. It should be you. It should be me. We should be paying for our sin. But Jesus is paying for our sin in our place. That is the grace and the love of God. And so he's praying that in his hour, in his death, God would be glorified. That the character of God, the purpose of God, the nature of God be on display. And what is on display is God is holy. Let the earth tremble. The earth literally trembles under the holiness of God. God is righteous and holy. And our sins are not okay and acceptable. They deserve the holy wrath of God, and His mercy is on display because He is there receiving it in our place. And so he's praying, may the glory of the cross be on display in my hour. May the Father be glorified, the Holy Father. May the Son be glorified, the Holy Son, the gracious Son, the gracious Father seen clearer than ever seen before. Also in this passage is the glory of salvation. Look at verse 2. Jesus prays for God to be glorified through his death. Verse 2, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The glory of salvation. What does he say? Jesus gives eternal life to those the Father gave him. So here's what he says, God takes some people, God chooses some people, takes some people, gives them to Jesus. Jesus gives those people eternal life. This is the glory of salvation. He's praying, may you be glorified in this. What he doesn't say is that people were good enough to receive salvation. People were pursuing God. That's not what he says. People were religious enough. People loved God enough. People felt bad enough for all the stuff they had done that they changed their lives and received eternal life. No. He says the Father gave. Gave is a grace word. Father gave to Jesus these people. Jesus gave eternal life to give eternal life to all you have given Him. He gives eternal life. And what is eternal life? Verse 3, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. What does He say, eternal life? Well, eternal means forever, so it's quantity of days, but it's quality of life as well. He's given you eternal life. How did they receive eternal life? What is eternal life? What does He say? Eternal life is pray to prayer one time, It's not what he says. Eternal life is that you may know the true God. The test of eternal life in the simplest terms is not did I pray a prayer? Did I become religious? Did I read my Bible? Did I go to church? Did I try hard? Eternal life is knowing God. How do we know it means knowing God intimately, personally, having fellowship with God, relationship with God, not just some religious being. Not just some moral code that we adhere to, but knowing God. That's eternal life. And how does that happen? Because the Father gives people to Jesus, and Jesus gives them eternal life. Because in His hour, His death, He is giving His life as a sacrifice for us. And then He is raised as well, which we'll study as well. His resurrection is His glory as well, not only His death. He prays that the eternal glory that he enjoyed with the Father, that he would enjoy it again. Verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I have had before the world existed. At his final hour, with the most horrendous event imaginable right in front of him, Jesus prays for God to be glorified. This is the heart of the Son. He looks His substitutionary sacrifice, which is unexplainable. We couldn't even imagine what kind of suffering that involved. He looks that squarely in the eye and he says, God, may you be glorified. That is the heartbeat of Jesus, that he prays for attention to be drawn to God himself, the Father, the Spirit, that the attention be drawn to God. So in his hour, Jesus prays that God may be glorified by his death. God may be glorified by his death. We can't give too much attention to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can't overfocus on the death, resurrection, ascension and seating at the right hand of the Father of Jesus Christ. We cannot. We certainly can give it too little attention, but we cannot be gripped in our souls uh, too tightly by the message of the gospel. We cannot be we cannot see it too clearly because there's always more to grasp and more to understand. And so Jesus is praying, "The glory of God shine through." What he has done, and may the glory of God shine through in our hearts. What he has done as well. So he prays for God to be glorified through his death, and then he prays for God to be glorified through his disciples. Verses six through eight, he identifies his disciples as those that he uh, the, the Father gave to Jesus out of the world; those who kept the Father's word; those who believe in Jesus. That's what he says in verses 6 through 8. And in verse 9, he is loving them. Look what he says in verse 9. I am praying for them. He's talking about his disciples. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. On the eve of his suffering and his death, Jesus' mind goes to the glory of God and to those who follow him. And so he is praying for them. This is the heart of God that he is interceding for his people. He is loving, caring for them. He is concerned for the disciples. He wants them to fulfill his mission. He, He loves them, and so he begins to pray for them. And in this passage, he prays for three things for his disciples. Now, this is very telling. I mean, what is Jesus praying right before his arrest? For the glory of God, secondly, for his disciples. And when he prays for them, he prays, first of all, for their protection for their protection. Now, I know we're not them, we're not the 11 disciples standing there, and verses 20 through 26, I think, address us directly, but I think this is relevant for us. I know Jesus is praying for his disciples, but I don't think he has a different purpose for us, ultimately, so I'm going to relate these to us as well. Uh, Verses 11 and 12, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Look at the language of protection. Verse 11. Um, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Uh, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. Verse 12, I have guarded them. He prays for the Father to keep them in his name. Now, what does this mean in his name? Well, the name of God is his character. His name is who he is. It represents who he is. So he's saying, keep them in your character. Keep them in your name. He's really praying, keep them faithful to you. Father, take these disciples. I've guarded them. I haven't lost one of them except Judas, who was never really one of us to begin with. And I haven't lost any of them. I've guarded them. Now, God, the Father, I'm leaving. Would you keep them faithful to you? Would you keep them in your name? They're going to experience severe opposition. And he prays that they will faithfully walk with God. His heart is that his people be faithful And he doesn't just charge them, hey, you guys be faithful. I'm leaving, and, uh, you know, when I'm gone, you guys don't blow it. You really could blow it. Don't blow it. He is calling the Father and saying, God, would you keep them faithful And he also prays that they be united. Look in verse 11 again, as I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. He prays that they be united. So keep them faithful, but also keep them faithful together as one. See, the goal is not that we just live the Christian life and like, if I can make it to the end faithful, that's all I'm hoping for. If I can just hang on to the end and be faithful, mission accomplished. Jesus has a much higher view for you than that. His view is that I make it to the end together with those you've called me to be with and that we be one. In other words, that we make it to the end faithful, that we remain faithful, that we be one. He's praying. It's not enough just to keep walking with the Lord, but to keep walking with the Lord in unity, and if you've been around the block at all and have any experience in church life around Christians and around church folk, you'll know why Jesus is praying that God keeps everybody united because we have a tendency to be divided. You put two Christians together and you got trouble because someone's going to be offended. Someone's going to disagree theologically, methodologically, sometimes it's going to be i just don't like you okay that's what it's going to be sometimes so you get, you get some christians together and there can be division and so jesus is praying make them one keep them one and for us to be one for us to uh, have unity what's required is first of all that we be kept faithful to the scriptures and to god and secondly that uh, that we be that we be together in him we kept faithful to the scripture and faithful to one another as well that God preserve us to do so and that there be grace and repentance so so God keeps us so that when we do have a breakdown in unity we can extend forgiveness to one another that that I can ask you to forgive me as God has for uh, knowing that as God has forgiven me you'll for, you'll forgive me and then I must forgive you so that as God has forgiven me, I will forgive you. So there's to be one, there is this implicit reality of repentance and forgiveness and all of this kind of thing when there is disunity. So he prays that you may be one. And we're going to talk about unity next week because that's what he, what he talks about. I'll talk more specifically next week about that. Praise that they may be faithful. Praise that they may be united. Thirdly, he prays that they may be kept from Satan. Look at verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Footnote says it could be from evil, but it's personified. The evil one. So he prays that Satan, the devil, the accuser, not have power over them, but that they be kept from him. They are going to experience outward resistance, which will be satanic, persecution. They're going to receive inward temptation... And he's praying that, that God keep them faithful and united because here's what the evil one will do. He will tempt us, tempt them and tempt us to unfaithfulness and to divisiveness. That is the work of Satan. He will oppose the work of God. He will oppose the work of God in your life. He will oppose the work of God in your marriage. He will oppose the work of God with your children. He will oppose the work of God in your community group. He will oppose the work of God in our church. He will oppose the work of God in our witness. And so he opposes the work of God to bring, to tempt us towards unfaithfulness, to tempt us to disunity. And so Jesus prays, keep them from the evil one. This is not the only place he prays this. In what's called the Lord's Prayer, which is really the model prayer, what does he pray? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. That's what he prays right there. Now, I think it's interesting that Jesus is mentioning Satan and praying for the keeping power against Satan for his followers. Now, he doesn't rebuke Satan at multiple levels. He doesn't identify all kinds of spirits and sort of run down a hierarchy of demonic powers. He doesn't do, uh, he doesn't elevate the power of Satan. He doesn't uh, glorify sort of the power of evil by giving an incredible amount of attention to it, you know, by giving 10 verses here to it. He just mentions him. But he does mention him, and he does pray recognizing there is a very real evil one, who will oppose the church. And when I read this this week and meditated on this, I, I realized that's, it's, this is the, a deficiency in my prayer life. If you hear me pray here, if you hear me pray uh, Fridays in our prayer meeting when we pray, you're invited any Friday to come. We meet here at 630. Uh, if you could hear my private devotional life. I, I would say this is a deficiency for me because I, I feel like I've been reactionary in some ways, I can easily ignore the very real power of the evil one. And part of that's just my own experience. I've been in the meetings, probably led, probably led some of the meetings, on sort of the extreme when everybody's shouting at the devil and you know, identifying all kinds of spirits and calling them down and all manner of uh, innovative and imaginatory prayer, prayer imaginary prayer techniques which aren't necessarily found uh, frequently in Scripture. Uh, certainly not as a primary way to pray. And so so as not to be the the person who's focused too much on Satan, I think I can go over here and ignore him altogether, and that's just as bad. Focusing too much on Satan is no no worse than ignoring him altogether. So Jesus doesn't highlight him, but Jesus does recognize the very real adversary, the very real opposition of the evil one, and then he prays, for God to keep his people from the power of the evil one, to keep them faithful, to keep them united, recognizing the power of the devil. Do you pray that way? It's interesting, in my notes I wrote that. I'm reading my notes now. Do you pray this way? And as soon as I wrote that, I thought, that's really not the ultimate purpose of this. The ultimate purpose is to say Jesus prayed that way for us. That's the good news, is that Jesus is aware of the enemy. Jesus interceded with his own blood to defeat the power of the enemy. Jesus' body came to life, and he rose out of a grave announcing the defeat of the enemy because Jesus defeated the power of sin, the power of death, the power of the devil, Jesus rose victorious as king over the devil, and here Jesus intercedes by prayer that we be kept from the devil. So ultimately, being kept from the devil is recognizing the work of Christ on our behalf and asking the Father to protect us in what Christ has done. It's primarily being aware of him and what he has done, and in this case, his prayer. So he prays that they be protected, that they be guarded Against unfaithfulness, guarded. Against disunity, guarded. Against the devil. Secondly, he prays for his disciples that they be joyful. Look at verse 13. Verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. At the most sober moment in human history... He's about to be arrested. God has come to earth, and the people are about to kill the Creator, God in Jesus Christ. At the most sober moment in history, Jesus is concerned about his followers' joy. That says something. In these chapters, when he's been teaching and preparing them for his departure, he's been talking about joy. Back in 1511, he said, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. So he's saying, Don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm praying that, that, that you would know my joy. Verses uh chapter 16, verse 24 Until now you have asked me nothing in my name, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So Jesus is concerned. This is joy is a serious matter. Jesus is concerned for the joy of his people. He prays that our lives would be filled with his joy. And no one in existence has ever been more joyful than Jesus, because he is, has no sins. He has no worries. He has no problems. There's nothing that God cannot do. There's nothing that God cannot know. God is glorious, and he is glorious joy, and Jesus prays that that joy would be in us. Paul said it this way, the Spirit of God's going to live in you, and the Spirit will produce fruit, and one of those fruits will be he will produce joy. So God is saying, I'm going to come live in you, and I'm going to grow joy out of your life. I'm going to grow joy in your heart. So Jesus is praying, God, don't just protect them from unfaithfulness, protect them from disunity, protect them from the evil one. It's not enough just that they serve faithfully but that we serve joyfully. He's not looking for robotic servants that just can check the list. I'm doing all the stuff and avoiding all the stuff. Rather, he wants life to come through us that is the life of Jesus, the joy of God. So he prays that we might not only be faithful servants, but we but we would serve with joy. We would know him with joy. This is why Psalm 100 doesn't just say, serve the Lord but serve the Lord with gladness. God wants happy, joyful people serving Him. And, and that doesn't mean that we ignore the problems of life. That doesn't mean that we, we don't suffer because the Bible's filled with promises of suffering, actually. That doesn't mean that a Christian can't get depressed because we can. doesn't mean that a Christian doesn't get sick because we do. Doesn't mean that a Christian doesn't die because we all will. But it means that even in difficult circumstances, there can be joy. Jesus says to the disciples, who have troubled hearts, I want my joy to be in you. Ask what you will, and the joy of God will be yours. Here he's praying, Father, make my joy, that that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So he's speaking to disciples that ultimately most of them will lose their head at a sword. And he's saying, God, may your joy fill them up. God wants us to experience joy. He commands it. It's a gift. It's a gift of grace. It's a significant priority. And we're not talking about some kind of shallow, feel-good Pollyanna. This is a deep-rooted joy. This isn't giggling at a seventh-grade girl's sleepover. That's not what he's talking about, just sort of a flighty, flippant sort of a joy that is just silliness. Or giddiness. No offense to any seventh grade girls in the room, because the seventh grade girls at this church aren't flippant and giddy. They have profound joy in the Lord. But some girls are that way. So, uh, just not you guys. You ladies are not that way. But it was for an illustration purposes. Uh, For the point of illustration, characteristically, seventh grade girls at a sleepover is not profound depth, it's shallow giddiness. So that's why I use the illustration, but I wasn't talking about you. (laughs) Profound depth of joy that permeates our lives. That's what he's talking about here. Guard them. Listen, if, if we're walking in faithfulness to God by His grace, if He's keeping us in faithfulness, really, it's not our walk, it's, it's keeping that's the emphasis. If He's keeping us in faithfulness, there will be joy. In unity, there is joy. You ever been in a fight where there's disunity? That's misery. There is joy in unity. Being kept from the evil one, that's joy. And that's the way He wants their lives, and that's what He prays. Here's what He says last of all. He prays lastly for sanctification... Their sanctification, but not just sanctification, sanctification for service. Look at uh, verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So he says, Father, sanctify them. What does this mean? What does sanctify mean? That's what he says uh, in verse 17. The word sanctify means uh, to make holy, or it means to set apart, to make holy. So it comes from the word which means holiness. So he's praying, God, my disciples, make them holy and set them apart. Now, the, the footnote in the ESV that I'm reading from is interesting because in verse uh, when it says sanctify them, some versions say consecrate them. But it says set them apart for holy service to God. So he's praying that his disciples be changed. And more specifically, he says um, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So he's praying that they be changed by the Scripture, that they be made holy, that they be set apart from the world, and that they grow in holiness for the purpose of service. And we see this in the text, because what does he say in verse 18? He says, "As you, the next verse, sanctify them, the next verse, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them. They're going together. Sanctify them and send them. Make them holy, set them apart from the world, set them apart from the world so that they could be sent into the world. Now, that's confusing to most of us because we misunderstand that, I think. I I do. What we tend to think is when we think of holiness, we may have even heard that, and it's biblical. Holy means to be set apart. God is holy. He's set apart from us. So for us to be holy is to be set apart from the world. That's true. But in talking about being set apart, he does not mean isolated. That's not what he is talking about here because he says, send them. So there's two extremes. On the one extreme would be that his disciples and us would be isolated from the world, be sanctified and set apart away from the world. The other extreme would not be isolation, but assimilation. That is to blend in and to be fully assimilated into the world. That is the other extreme he wants neither of those he wants sanctify what does that mean? Be made holy so that they may be sent out as you sent me, I send them sanctification for the purpose of being sent, holiness for the purpose of mission, set apart for the purpose of going into the world as a witness. This is how Jesus lived, and see it can seem contradictory. But this is how Jesus lived. I'm going to read you two verses. Listen to these phrases because I think they're, I think they're amazing and I think they're what God wants to do in us. Hebrews 7. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. That's Jesus. And here's what it says. That we have, should have such a high priest. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus is holy. He is innocent. He is unstained, and how does Jesus, how is he viewed with sinners? He is separated from sinners. Now listen to Matthew 11. The Son of Man, that's Jesus, came eating and drinking. That's not talking about grape juice. we talk about that another time. But eating and drinking... It's what you think it is. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. And Jesus never got drunk, but he was accused of that. A glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So here it says Jesus is eating and drinking with bad people. Tax collectors, despised. Sinners, despised. And he is, what does it say? He is a friend of sinners. So, here's Jesus. When God comes to earth, here's what he is. Hebrews 7, unstained and separated from sinners. Matthew 11, friend of sinners, hanging out with sinners, unstained, separate from sinners, with sinners. He is, so we need to live separate lives that show up so that when we are with sinners, we are, um, we are a witness among them and to them. So we're to be set apart from the world. That means we are ultimately to be set apart from the viewpoints, the worldview, the mindset of the world. So we're not to be like the world. We're not to be driven by materialism. We're not to be driven by the hatred of racism. We're not to be driven by selfishness, pride, arrogance, Grasping for me, we're not to be driven by self-promotion and my success. That's the world's thinking. We're not to be driven by lust and the fulfillment of, of, uh, of uh, illicit, forbidden sexual practices. The Bible forbids. We are to. Uh, we are not to be like the world in that way. So we are to be separate from the mindset of the world, and we are to be separate from the actions of the world that are forbidden in Scripture, because Jesus could be a friend of sinners, but never sin. Now, we'll never accomplish that, but he accomplished that for us. So he's a friend of sinners, but he never sinned. So, and we're to avoid whatever the Bible calls us sin. Not what sort of fundamentalist culture calls to sin necessarily, but what the Bible explicitly calls as sin we are to avoid, so we are to be separate from adopting the worldview and biblically forbidden practices of the world. But we are to be friends of sinners together with sinners, together with family, friends, neighbors, coworkers who are sinners. So that we can be a witness of Christ to them. I was meeting with a unbeliever i am mean, sorry, a new believer, not an unbeliever. I was meeting with a new believer recently, and uh, he was just opening up a struggle with me, and he was telling me, "I've got this challenge because I have all these friends that don't know Christ, and if I go in a new believer, if I go and hang out with them, I feel like I'm going to do the stuff I used to do." But if I avoid them and I lose that relationship, then I can't be a witness to them. So what do I do? Do I go be with them and I don't know what, you know, who knows, am I strong enough? Or do I avoid them and I'm not their friend, but then how are they going to know about Jesus? I absolutely love that. I mean, I just told him, may your, I didn't say this literally, but I was thinking, may your tribe increase by hundreds at Grace Church. May there be people here who are living with that. I'm a new believer in Jesus. What do I do? I mean, the answer is to have a good strategy. Have someone go with you. Have your friends come with you where you have some other people uh, that are strengthening you. Pray and be prepared as you go. Um, but it's not be set apart, and never speak to any unbelievers. That's not the answer. The answer is to be set apart so that you can be sent, and you may need help. And there is a place, by the way, if you're here and you are a new Christian, I don't give the wrong idea, there is a place to say, I can't go to that location because I probably will do what I did for There is a place to gain strength, but we just creatively think about, then how do I engage those friends in a different way? So there is a place for that. Um, but that's that's the dilemma. He says, Jesus is talking about be sanctified and sent. Set apart and sent into the world. What is not an option is to be holy and isolated. What is not an option is to be unholy and assimilated. It's not an option to be just like the world. So that at work, if you ever spoke up for the Lord and everybody said, What? What are you talking? Are you kidding well, you're a Christian. I would have never guessed that. That's amazing. Is this a, Is there a camera? Is this like a joke? Am I being punked? What? You're a Christian. If that's the case, that's not what he's talking about. It's not like friend of sinners. You can't tell the difference between me and them. That's not what he's talking about. But he's also not talking about the person over here who is so holy and has built so many walls in their life, that they have no relationship, they won't speak to an unbeliever, they're afraid of unbelievers, they won't ever engage about the cause of Christ. That's wrong too. I love what Kent Hughes said, a commentator. He said in this passage about these two verses, sanctify them and I have sent them into the world. He says the method of mission is sanctification. It's not one or the other. It's God matures us and grows us in holiness and at the same time sends us out in the world that we may be a shining light together individually as families as community groups as a church this is a great challenge i think this is a great challenge for me I, i wrestle with this i was looking at it and you know all of us can we can tend to go to one camp or the other sometimes and i wrestle with that saying i don't want to be isolated in my life and i was I was wrestling about this this week and saying, I think this could be a challenge to balance both, to balance both sanctified and sent. How do we do those together? And then I was thinking about our church and I was thinking, this is a challenge for us as a church that we want to grow in this and we want to live pursuing holiness by the grace of God, pursuing Jesus and living sent, pursuing the mission of Christ to go forth equally. We want both. And I was thinking, that's a challenge for our church. And and, and then I thought, that's a challenge for everybody. That's why on the eve of his death, Jesus is praying for his disciples that they get both of them, that they be set apart for service and that they be sent. So if you wrestle and you feel like, oh, I'm I'm over here too much in the world, that I'm I'm not even any different I'm just like them. It'd be a surprise if my friends at school, my neighbors, or my coworkers knew I was a Christian. Or if you feel like you're too much over here, I'm just sort of isolated in a Christian bubble. I'm bubble boy over here, just covered up. If that's you, and you say, I wrestle, I don't want that. Hey, you're in good company. Jesus expected those who walked with him would wrestle with this. Everybody would. That's why Jesus only prays for a few things in this prayer, and this is one of them, because this is huge. The mission of the gospel going forth is gutted if Christians stay together. And the mission of the gospel going forth is gutted if Christians assimilate into the world so they look just like them and there's no light in the darkness. The church is dark just like the world. That kills the mission of the gospel going forth, as does the Christians who are separate Not for mission, but just for their own holiness. We need both. And so that's what he prays for the disciples. I just feel free that that's everybody's challenge. I just feel free that Matthew, that John, who wrote this, he must have struggled because Jesus is praying for his disciples. So, can we just be real and say, we're all going to wrestle with the balance, but let's just pursue let's ask by the grace of God, our hearts would be brought to pursue Jesus and to pursue reaching out to the world and be friend of sinners, both Let's ask the Lord just to help us with both of those. I was just reading this and thinking about, man, what would what would happen in, a, in an individual's life in a family, in a community group, or in a church, if all of these prayers like collided? together if they all came in together in one place i mean what would it be like in your family in your community group in our church if we were looking to god as jesus prayed here we're saying god we're trusting you to keep us faithful jesus prayed that so we're looking for faithfulness we're pursuing unity because jesus prayed that we may be one we're we're pursuing you and trusting you to keep us separated and protected from the evil one god protect us. God, we are praying for joy, that your joy would be in us. That's interesting that he says that here. So he says, doesn't say be consecrated and sour so that when you go into the world, everybody says, no thanks, but be joyful so that when you're sent, people are saying, what is up? What is that about? I want some of that. I want what you guys are experiencing because there's joy. What if that was characteristic of us? What if the church was mo- known for its joy? That even in pursuing holiness, there was joy that came from the Spirit in our lives. And what if we were living, as he says here, being sanctified for service, being sent for service? That's God's purpose. That's Jesus' prayer. So we can pray these things. Sometimes you pray, I'm not sure what the Lord's will. If Jesus prayed it and it's in red in your Bible, it's the will of God. So you can pray these things and know God's going to answer. This is his will. Jesus interceded for these things. May he do it in our lives as they conspire together. May these all come together in our lives and in our church that we may honor our Lord by his grace, that we may magnify what he has done, that we may see glory brought to him in his hour of death and resurrection, and that we may be set apart for him and sent in joy, in joy. Let's stand together. Here's what I would like to do as we close normally we have an open prayer time here where a lot of people can get prayed for by a lot of people. I'm going to do something different today as we close. I'm going to echo what Rob said earlier. Uh, I was here last night for the whole event and uh, I thought it was excellent. And I was very excited about it and everything that happened. But here's what I was more excited about than the event. No disrespect for those who who participated. I loved what you did. But here On the stage, I love what you did, but here's what I appreciated more. I appreciated that junior high and high school and college-age people broke out of their own world and their own comfort and their own convenience and reached out and invited people and pursued people to come hear the gospel proclaimed and in so doing identified themselves with Jesus. You know, I'm not saying that's evangelism to hand somebody a card and invite them to a concert. But I am saying that is, a, that is caring about others, that's wanting to be sent, and that's identifying yourself with Jesus. Because when they come to an event, you know, Jesus is going to be on display in a significant way. So that's sort of coming out and acknowledging their faith. So I love that. How many people did that in this church and how many people worked and served? And it felt to us like God was turning something in a lot of folks' lives who were thinking outward in a fresh way. And so here's how I'd like to close. I'd like to close praying for young people in our church because everyone in this church is called to be, by God's grace, to be sanctified, set apart for service, and sent. Everybody is. However, I think the reality is that a lot of young people have opportunities um, that a lot of old people often don't. Because a lot of young people are very open to the gospel. Most of us who are Christians here, most people got saved before the age of 25. Most people in the room that are Christians. Now, I want to believe God for lots of 25 and ups getting saved. Absolutely. I want to I want to believe God for ancient people like me getting saved. God is miraculous, and he can do that. But I'm going to tell you, the majority of people get saved in childhood, and a lot who stick and are really saved get saved in high school and college when they're making life decisions. God reaches in and grabs them. So we're, I'm not saying this is for some of us. This is for all of us. But in particular... Our junior high and high school and college people have opportunities uh, and will have opportunities with their families and on their own through school and work and neighborhood and other ways to be a witness for Christ and to reach out. So I'm going to close by praying for that group of people. And as a church, could we in our hearts just come around them and pray? We're all sent. We're not getting a pass on this. But could we pray that God would continue to send them with their families and on their own to be a witness for Jesus Christ? and that they would be set apart for service from the world, that they wouldn't be isolated and that they wouldn't be assimilated, but they would be sanctified and sent by the power of God. So, if you're in junior high or college age, so that means if you're whatever, sixth grade, is that 11 or 12? If you're about 11 or 12, or you're up through about 24, I'm gonna ask you to come right down and stand here because we're gonna pray for, I'm gonna pray for you to lead and the church is gonna pray for you and we're gonna pray that God would use you in a powerful way like he did last night. Look at this group of people. I mean, this is phenomenal. This is a lot of people. I used to think our church was all little kids, like busting in the nursery, but the demographics are changing, and we're bursting, not busting, we're bursting. Uh, We're bursting at this age. Guys, we, we love you guys. A lot of you guys are new. We're really glad that you are here. Some of you guys are new. Some of you have been around a long time. But we love you guys as a church, and we respect you, and we value God's work in your life. And we're not taking a pass and saying it's all on you. But in some ways, the future is all on God through you. That is true. And so I'm going to pray for you right now and just ask that God would use you in a powerful way and that you would be sent out. We're all going to walk out that door and be sent. But that you, in a special way, would be empowered by the Spirit to reach your generation with the gospel. So you pray with me. I'm going to pray for these young people. God, we thank you for these young people. We thank you that they are here today, everywhere that they could be on the planet, and today they're in the house of the Lord, the people of God gathered, and they're worshiping you, and we thank you for that. Lord, uh, some of these folks, a lot of them have Christian parents, and we thank you for the family that they are being raised in, and parents who are instructing them in the gospel. Lord, a lot of them may not come from a Christian family, and they don't have Christian parents, and we thank you that you are the father you are their father and that you have brought them here today so we thank you for them as well we thank you for all these kids and we just pray that you would work through them. God, we pray that you would sanctify them by grace, that you would protect them to be faithful. Well, first of all, I pray you would save them if they don't know you. Give them new life in Jesus Christ. Secondly, I pray that you would protect them to keep them faithful, keep them unified with their parents, their siblings, and their Christian friends, and their church. Keep them unified with believers, I pray. Guard them from the evil one. May they not go down the pathway of darkness, but guard them from the evil one, we pray. Fill them with your joy, God, that the joy of the Lord would flood them and be infectious. And Lord, would you sanctify them for the cause of service? I pray that they would know You and by Your grace they would pursue holiness, that You would do a deep work in them that would help them to say no to the world, the flesh, and the devil, and would help them to say yes to Christ. I pray the gospel would be more wonderful and glorious than anything else to them. God, I pray that You would sanctify them in Your Word. Make them young men and women that fear God and love God and His Word. And would you at the same time send them? Lord, would they be ones who are friend of sinners, who can communicate the gospel to their generation, who can invite, who can love, who can serve, who can proclaim, who can share the gospel? We pray that you would fill them with your spirit for the purpose of producing godly character and for the purpose of witness. And we pray that they would be sent out to reach many for Jesus. And we pray that many young people would come to Christ in this city, Lord, in our church we pray that the kids who are growing up in this church would not be church kids who know it all up in their heads but would be believers who are born again by the power of god and we pray for kids who aren't growing up in church families but find their way into this church that you would build them into this church family and surround them with godly mentors and friends god would you do a work that's way beyond us we pray In the name of Jesus, Lord, would you send these out in power? And we thank you for they are a gift from you. In Jesus' name. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.